Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 9. Often, right before we read the sermon text, we, I will say to you, this is the word of God and it's eternally true. And for those of you who don't know this, this is simply a restatement of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 18, verse, Matthew 5, verse 18, where he says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. What this means is that when we open this book, which is the word of God written, even the punctuation marks, the vowel pointing, the smallest little part of what is written on this will not pass away, even when heaven and earth do pass away. And so <clears throat> this week we come to God's word to be fed. We come to it as the bread of life. We come to it because it feeds us Jesus Christ. Wherever we read, it's Jesus that we're fed. This is the word of God, and it's eternally true, Matthew 5, verses 6 to 9. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul here points to the past, and he says two things about when... Jesus died. So two chronological statements. Not how he died, but when he died. First, he died, what? While we were still helpless. And second, he died at the right time. So when we were still helpless and at the right time. When he says that Jesus died while we were still helpless, this means that he did not die while we were being helpful. Now, that's the first thing we need to notice. We do not help God save us. We just don't do it. This is the world's religions. The world's religions are man reaching to God, and the ways he reaches are infinite. They can be Santa Maria. They can be smoking dope. They can be not stepping on ants, not wearing shoes, lest you step on ants. It can be having your membership in this or that denomination. It can be baptism. It can be, you know, having, being baptized and then being confirmed and having first communion and then doing confession and then doing the masses and all this stuff. And all of this is our attempt to help God. <laughs> and it's all a bunch of rot because we can't help God. Why? Because we're helpless. 
We were helpless the day that our federal head, Adam, we were all present in Adam the day he sinned in Adam. And from that moment, all of his descendants became helpless because God had said, the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. And so we were dead in our trespasses and sins in Adam before we were ever born. And from the day of your conception, you have been helpless. You are being present participle. You yourself are being helpless. That's an accurate description. And so when it says, while we were still helpless, that's an accurate description of the Christian. That when God died for him, when God dies for her, when Jesus Christ hung on the cross for you, that you were being helpless. And so Christian faith is not about man or woman presenting something that they can leverage God with. There's no, you know, synergism. There's no mutuality. There's no strength in us. There's no sustainability. There's no goodness in us. There is no life in us when Jesus died. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so we were still helpless. We hadn't done anything to commend ourselves to God, and we didn't have anything to say for ourselves. So, young man, what do you have to say for yourself? Nada. Nothing. I'm a zero. And that's an accurate statement. We're helpless. We're being helpless before a holy God. When our Lord Jesus Christ hung upon the cross and died, we were helpless. And so this little word that's in the text is a very helpful word. Because we need to be reminded that we're helpless There is no place to look but Jesus. And not Jesus in his wisdom, not Jesus in his power, raising them from the dead, not Jesus in in any of his strength, but Jesus in such weakness that he's on the cross pouring out his blood. And that's the point where we see him at his greatest helpfulness. Not in his resurrection, but in his death. Why? Because we are helpless. That's what we are. It punctures the lie of Satan that keeps many on the pathway to hell for us to confess our helplessness. Because It stops us from producing works that we think will please God and make us presentable to him. And that's what an awful lot of our lives are spent doing, is trying to clean ourselves up in some way that makes us presentable. You know, honey, you want to go out to dinner? Yeah, just just give me a minute. Let me freshen up. Okay? And we spend our lives trying to freshen up, and we still stink to heaven. 
because all our righteousness is his filthy rags before God. You ever tried to be righteous, huh? Anybody here? How, how did it go? Huh? You know, knock your socks off. Did your, when you thought you were righteous, did your wife think you were? <laughs> no, we're helpless. It was verse 6, while we were still helpless, and then it says, at the right time. Now, when we hear this at the right time, we immediately think of Galatians 3, right? Which I think is the, you know, the most classic location to talk about the timing of Jesus' death. Because it says there in Galatians 3, or Galatians 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so we hear redeem, being redeemed and being adopted as sons in the fullness of time. And it's, it's all warm fuzzies, right? And so we have the song that the band has written about this uh, in the fullness of time. Well, <clears throat> that's part of what's meant here when it says that it's the right time. It was the fullness of time. It was the time that God had decreed. It was the center of human history. It was the kairos for all of man. All right. But there's another sense in which it was at the right time, and why is that? <laughs> well, it's because it was while we were still helpless. I mean, can you think of a better time for Christ to die than while we were still helpless? That's pretty good timing. It would be awful if Jesus would have died when we were helpful. But fortunately, he died precisely when we were still helpless. Does this make sense to you? In other words, if you are someone today who feels like you're hopeless because you're helpless, because you're ungodly, which by the way, that's what it says. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So if you feel that you are Helpless and ungodly. In other words, if you feel like Adam standing naked before God after he has rebelled against God's command, this is proof that you qualify for the blood of Jesus. Now, what proves that you don't qualify for the blood of Jesus and that you will not be washed by his blood? Let me ask it again. How would you show that Jesus didn't die for you? And that you really are helpless? Well, the way you would show that is by acting and speaking to others as if you are helpful. In other words, pride is the way that you show that Jesus has not washed you with his blood. That's how you show it. Because after all, he died for the helpless, and so if you're helpful, it's hope, hopeless for you. Now, I'm using words in a way that you're not used to having them used. Because what? I always say, hey, here's an idea. Let's have a pastor who's, what? Helpful, right? But here, the word helpless means we have nothing in us to commend us to God. And so, if you're going around making the case to the people that you live among, 
and that you work with and that, that are in your home, in your marriage, if you go around making the case to them that you are superior to other people and that you are God's gift to man, uh, mm, mm, not so much. Why? Well, because actually Jesus is God's gift to man. And anyone who belongs to Jesus is not going around what? Not going around glorifying themselves. Because God will share his glory with no man. He just will not do it. If you think you became a Christian, and now you live a life of arrogance and pride, what you need to do is ask whether there really was any point in your life where you were helpless and ungodly. Right? And then you need to recover that karma. Now, I don't really want you, want, want you to recover any karma, okay? But you get what I'm saying, that, that posture, that, that way of living. You cannot go from being hopeless and helpless and ungodly and having faith in Jesus Christ and becoming arrogant and proud and superior. This is ludicrous. Why? Because God is jealous for his own glory, and he will not share it with any man. Because the Bible says God resists the proud. And so listen, there is no greater glory for you than for you to confess how hopeless and helpless and ungodly you were and are today and will be until the presence of God with glorification. Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. This is the command of God to Christians. <coughs> this isn't the command of God to unbelievers. This is the command of God to the church. And so the church lives in humility with each other. The church doesn't live showing its superiority to each other because that denies the glory of God. Okay? For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And this was the fullness of time. When we look at the pairing of these words, helpless and ungodly, we must confess that it's a very lovely pair. Now, I know it sounds ugly, but it's not ugly at all, it's lovely. And it's lovely because it makes the path straight it levels the hills and the valleys, and God and his righteousness and his lamb have appeared. And that's lovely. It's lovely when everything is removed between our eyeballs and Christ lifted high on the cross. Our pride, our fear, our self-importance, everything is leveled. Everything is removed, and that's a lovely sight that we are ungodly, that we are helpless and that he is lifted high. It would be a terrible thing for Christ to be lifted high on the cross and for us to be proud. Right? When I hear of my helplessness under the cross and of my ungodliness, the hymn that 
most speaks to this for me is All Holy Jesus, and I'm only going to read one stanza, which is the fifth one. Therefore, kind Jesus, kind Jesus, since I cannot pay thee, I do what? Any of you know? I do adore thee. Since I can't pay you off, I'll just adore you. Okay? And will ever pray thee, I'll, I'll forever ask you to think on your pity and your love that is unswerving. And then what? How does it end? Do you remember? Not my deserving. Therefore, kind Jesus, since I cannot pay thee, I do adore thee, and will ever ask you to think on your pity and your love, which is unswerving, not my deserving. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. Wretch lost blind, helpless, ungodly, undeserving. Burn these truths into your mind and heart and into the minds and hearts of your children. Jesus died for us at the right time because we were helpless, ungodly. And what do these truths prove to us? Well, they prove the love of God. Verse 7, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. So this is what's called a hypothetical. This is where the Apostle Paul says, okay, let's think about normal, the normal life of man. Well, the normal life of man is nobody's going to die for anybody, right? Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend, right? And his friend better be godly, he better be a good man, he better be a righteous man, because nobody ever dies for unrighteous. I mean, nobody ever dies for anybody, period, right? Right? One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. And so this is the Apostle Paul's observation about the nature of man. You know, we don't die for other people. And if we do, it's going to be a righteous person. It's not going to be a wicked person. This is the illustration of the love of God. Because what it says about God is that he dies for the ungodly. And listen, this statement about God dying for the ungodly is repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over in Scripture. It doesn't have to be a little jot or tittle of the punctuation of Scripture for this truth because it's just repeated endlessly in Scripture that Jesus didn't come for the righteous, he came for sinners. And so if you're a sinner, you qualify. And you'd say, well, good, let's go home. But here's the problem. The problem is that you don't think you're a sinner. Everybody says, you don't have to preach about the law of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. You don't have to preach about their sin because everyone knows they're a sinner. But here's the truth. Actually, most people deny that they're sinners. Most people live in fear of the holiness of God while denying they're sinners. I mean, how does that work? 
Where does this knowledge of our perpetual failure to live by the holiness of God come from when we think we're righteous, when we have self-righteousness? Listen, if I were to describe the particular group of Christians that I have my allegiance with doctrinally, I would describe them as Presbyterian or Reformed, okay? Protestant. So I'm a Christian, a Protestant Christian, a Reformed or Presbyterian Protestant Christian, okay? And if I were to describe them in terms of their affect and their karma, you know, karma, what I would say is they're a bunch of proud, arrogant, censorious wimps. They will not preach against sin because they don't love anybody while they look at everybody else and think how stupid they are because they don't know how to pronounce the word sovereignty. Or grace, although everybody knows how to say grace, amazing grace, right? How is it that you can have people who believe in the substitutionary atonement, the penal substitutionary atonement, that Christ died for sinners, that he took their place under the wrath of God, and he bore God's wrath in their place, and then have pride How does that happen? It seems like reformed people would be the most humble people that there are. And you know, in past generations, it was true. You read the Puritans, and it's unbelievable how good they are at naming their sins and showing you their particularities. If I were to take the two places in church history where there is the most obvious excellence in self-diagnosis, okay? I would take the Puritans, and I would take Gregory the Great's book, Pastoral Care. Back in what? The fourth century? Josh? Is it the sixth? I'm off by two centuries. So how is it that today we, we, we have become so proud? How did that happen? Well, you remember what I said. You remember that Protestant Reformed Christians say don't believe you should preach the law of God. Everybody says, well, they already know they're sinners. They just need to know that their sin's no obstacle to the grace of God. Preach the grace of God because they already know they're sinners. And so what happens is (laughs) all the people in the church forget that they're sinners because the law of God is not held up to them. And so people who were saved while they were helpless and ungodly become helpful and become proud. And there's no preaching of the holiness of God. Listen, the whole progress of this text we're reading today, the whole point of it is it's written to Christians to convince them that they should not despair. Do you hear me? This text is written to living Christians in Rome in the church to keep them from despairing. This is not an evangelistic text. I mean, it is evangelistic, but this text is written to strengthen Christians. Why do I say that? 
Well, because look at how it ends. It says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You see this? It's looking back and it's looking forward. That when we stand before the judgment seat of God, in all his holiness and all our sins of our lives, that we have nothing to be afraid of. And so it is the normal Christian life. Oh, no, I better shut up about that. I better not go off on the normal Christian life. But listen, the normal Christian life is men and women who are increasingly aware of their sin and increasingly love Jesus because he died for their sins. And they don't run away from self-knowledge, but they run to it because the more they know themselves, the more they love Jesus. This is the normal Christian life, a growing self-critical capacity. Growing. If your religion is such that you have to minimize your sin as a Christian, and you have to act as if that wasn't really a sin, it was just you not understanding, and your wife didn't really sin, it's just we're having a communication problem. You know how this stuff all works. And, and we nip and tuck and, and trim, and we go around all our sins, and we go around our children's sin. You know, we minimize our children's sin, we minimize our sin first, then our children's, and then if we're really sanctified, we mini minimize our wife's sin. It usually doesn't work out that way. It, it, it sticks with us and our children, but usually not our wife, you know, or our husband, more likely the husband. Okay. <laughs> you know what I loved while I was preparing? You, you could probably predict that I read Calvin, right? Yeah, I read Calvin. And you know what Calvin says here? He says, all of us, all of us, were still helpless and ungodly. Now, why do I comment on that? Well, I comment on it because some of you are aware of how, how frequent it is today for uh, Reformed and Presbyterian men to make much of, of, the, of covenant succession. You know, you, you raise your children in the faith, they're baptized, and there's never a moment in their lives where they don't know they're a Christian. You know, you give them the Lord's Supper when they're one and a half and rub their belly and pat their bunny or whatever. I, I'm not sure how that thing goes, but you know what I mean. Pat the bunny and what? Or no, pat the belly or rub the bunny. I can't remember what it is. That's an in-joke, but those of you that know that joke are really laughing right now. Okay. So, you know, you baptize your, your kid when he's born. He's born into the covenant, and then, then he, he's communed at the age of one and a half or half. And then he's, and it's bliss from bliss to bliss to bliss. And what John Calvin says, all of us, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us. We're still helpless. All of us were ungodly. This is John Calvin's confession about himself. There is no man who comes to God without confessing that he's ungodly and helpless. In other words, there is no way to be regenerate without repentance. 
There's no way to be sanctified without repentance. Do you see this? The whole point of what the Apostle Paul is telling us is that you and I are a piece of work. That's the point. I was thinking a week and a half ago, I don't remember who it was about. You'll probably know, and I'll be embarrassed for you to know. But I was thinking about, maybe it was three months ago. That's safe. Uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> well, I can't think of who it is, but that's my blood pressure med, so... Anyhow, I was thinking about a couple that was either getting engaged or getting married. And I was just thinking to myself, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people we've watched get engaged and get married, you know? You know? True love. And I'm telling you, the wake up, you know? Those of us who've been married, if I say to you, how long was it before you hit the wall? That's the way Mary Lee and I talk about it. Have they hit the wall? Well, what's the wall? Well, the wall is that that perfect woman you just married actually isn't perfect, and that perfect man you just married actually isn't perfect. You know? And here's an idea. That's a gift from God. And romance starts when you hit the wall. Before that, it was idiocy. A sort of divine idiocy... You know, it's like you, you take opioids, you know, and they last until you hit the wall. But you will hit the wall. And when you hit the wall, if you're a Christian, then you begin to say to your wife that you believe that God will complete the work that he's begun in you. And that really will be the most hopeful thing you can say to her. Ron will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die, but God. So, man, so maybe for, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so, you know, you think of all the exhibit halls where things are demonstrated, things are put on exhibit. Some of them are beautiful. You go to Longwood Gardens, you can see the bonsai, you can see the different colored water lilies and the roses, and it's absolutely gorgeous. God puts on exhibit his love, and how does he do it? He does it by placing his son naked on a cross outside the walls and having his lifeblood poured out for the sins of the world. That's how God demonstrates his love. We can tell what a generation raised on John Lennon thinks of love when we see that generation denouncing the substitutionary atonement. When we see that generation calling the penal substitutionary atonement that Jesus Christ bore the sins, and they call that divine child abuse, that's the understanding of our generation today of love. 
that God would send his son to be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and God himself would command his son to go to the cross. God would not give in when his son pleaded the night before, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done, and he goes to the cross. And that is God demonstrating his love for us. Do you deserve that love? Have you ever done anything that deserves that love? Anything. Take the most righteous thing you've ever done in your life. Take the greatest moment of self-sacrifice in your entire life. Put it in front of you and say, does that merit the blood of God's Son? And the answer is no. There's not one of us who has ever done anything that in any way merits one drop of blood from Jesus. And yet what? Well, but, and yet God demonstrates his love. And that love is lifted high. That love is lifted so high that even the foulest person dug down in the deepest degradation of sin can see Jesus and can be washed. God demonstrates his own love. Now you look at that and you realize there's no way you can be proud and love Jesus. You can't do it. Because the most lovable thing about Jesus is his obedience to death, even the death on a cross. And what's going to make you love that death is a knowledge of your unworthiness, right? That's what's going to make you love Jesus, right? Huh? looking at you. It's very interesting. You should see a snapshot of you right now because you would think when I keep saying, hmm, that there would be people just giving an almost imperceptible nod of the head or a wink or smile or something. How can we see Jesus lifted on the high cross, demonstrating his Father's love and be so dispassionate and so cold so cerebral, so stoic. Huh? Huh? You say, well, if it was Jesus up there, we'd give him a smile. No, you wouldn't. Because with me, I'm a sinner. You can have much more confidence with me, right? 
I understand. Verse 9, much more than. So we're looking back at the cross, and he, he, he took his father's wrath upon himself for us. We're looking back. And then the Apostle Paul says, much more than having now been, been justified by his blood, we shall be saved. Do you remember what I said, that this is, this is written by the Apostle Paul to Christians to keep you from despairing over your sin, right? Okay, yeah, your sins are awful, but you have been justified, and you will not have to fear the wrath of God. All right? And so cheer up. For heaven's sakes, live in worship. Live in humility and live in worship of God. Give up. You know, you're not fooling anybody. You know? Just give it up. Love God. Sing to him. Pray to him. And then make life miserable for your children who are proud. I mean, what a relief if some of your homes finally had one humble child. I just won. It might be catching. It might be like hoof and mouth disease. And the good thing is with humans, you don't shoot them. Have you ever noticed how it's the most, it's the most gnarly, awkward, nasty child that God does his greatest work in? <laughs> I see parents nodding their head. I'm hoping their children aren't watching them, you know. <laughs> I resemble that implication. You know, God is delighted to take pieces of work and save them and sanctify them and then make them stand before God. And in the interim, we're going to have all kinds of people who never stop making fun of us, who never stop hating us. And you say, well, nobody hates me. And I say, oh, yeah, yeah, they do. I, I hate you. <laughs> I don't want you to feel unhated. Come to me afterwards and I'll, I'll, I'll try. But you know how it's just like your presence at family meetings and your presence at at reunions and your presence at work and your presence on the editorial page of, or, well, newspapers are dead, so I don't know, Facebook. Your presence on Facebook. It's just heinous. Right? You know what I'm talking about. But don't worry. When you were still helpless and when you were ungodly, Christ died for you. And so cheer up because when you stand before the holy God, and his wrath against mankind is revealed. You will stand. Why? Because you're washed in Jesus' blood. That's why. Remember that Jesus said that no servant is greater than his master. If they hated me, they'll hate you too. But then he says, but cheer up. I've overcome the world. And so listen, live in a way that confesses 
the truth about you, which is your sin, your weakness, your helplessness. There's nothing wrong with that. There's, there's a section. <laughs> okay, you want a little story? Here's a funny story. It just came to me. I was looking at you, Linda, and it came to me. That's, it went off, okay? So when I was at, uh, when I was at, uh, uh, when I was getting my undergraduate degree, I became a history major, and we had this professor um, who was a visiting professor from England. And this professor was very intellectually uh, engaged with a certain concept, okay? And the concept was um, <laughs> the concept was the Greek word ecstasis. Now, if you know anything about ekstasis, it, it just is the preposition ek and stasis to stand. So it's standing out. All right? Translated into English or transliterated is ecstasy. He was interested in ecstasy, and specifically ecstasy of a Christian sort. And so he told us about uh, Pascal, who when he was dead, they, they cut open his cloak and they found this little ecstatic uh, uh, exclamation that he had written down on a little piece of paper that he'd sewn into his cloak. It was like, fire, fire, God's love, you know, one of the most brilliant men that's ever existed, you know. He talked to us about Calvin's burning heart. And he had us read a book called The Praise of Folly by Erasmus, the bete noir of Martin Luther, the great Renaissance man of the Reformation time in the Roman Catholic Church. And in Praise of Folly is a whole book written about the stupidity of godliness. But it's done by the most brilliant man of the time. And the thing you'll really get a kick out of is that this man who was teaching us about ecstasy and the praise of folly, was, his name was what? His name was Michael J. Screech! <laughs> it was literally his S-C-R-E-E-C-H. I always got a kick out of that. A man named Screech teaching about ecstasy, you know. So, so it was a good class, right? And I really learned the book in praise of folly, right? So I go to seminary and I'm gonna I'm gonna preach I'm gonna preach a sermon, and it's homiletics, you know. That's what they call sermon preaching in seminary. And so I preach a sermon, and the sermon is on the foolishness of God. And I end the sermon by doing what? Well, I end the sermon by reading the last few paragraphs of The Praise of Folly. Sadly, my professor had never read The Praise in Praise of Folly. And so when I read it and cited it in the sermon, all he could think of was how awful it was that I was saying these things in a sermon. Well, why? Well, because the end of In Praise of Folly is Erasmus talking about how it has always been. Women, idiots, and the uneducated 
who have been closest to the cross of Jesus Christ. And all he could do is just read me the riot act for being so condescending to women. And of course, the whole point was the glory of women. And so listen, I, I got a bad grade. I went to him and showed him what book it was from. He was fully embarrassed. I don't think, and, and then I told him I did not want my grade changed. No. Now listen, my reason for telling this is I don't care if you have a doctorate or if you haven't completed high school. What we're supposed to do is we're supposed to make a demonstration of the love of God. And we don't demonstrate the love of God in Christ Jesus by being proud. We don't. We have to be humble. We have to show what a piece of work we are because there are all kinds of little people in this world who are hopeless and helpless. And they think that Christians are people that are good. And it's just not true. It's not when God saved John Calvin, and it's not when God saved you, and it's not when God saved Peter. And so be humble. Be humble. And if you think that God will not have mercy on you because you're hopeless and helpless, <laughs> I'm here to tell you that he has helped me. Jesus washed me. And I was a piece of work. I still am, ask my wife. But I'm being cheerful because he started a work with a helpless, hopeless, ungodly man. And when I stand before the judgment seat of God, I am not going to fall. I will stand because of Jesus. And if you think that's demeaning to you, Come to your senses, because that's the demonstration of God's love. Let's pray. Father, we pray for all of us here that you will help us to remember our sins, knowing that those sins have been washed with the blood of Jesus. Help us not, Father, to be proud and arrogant. Help us not to think that we're something when we're nothing. Father, would you please fill this church with those little people, with women and children and the uneducated, those who glory in Jesus Christ. And would you give us shepherds Titus, two women, fathers, mothers, would you give us children who glory in Jesus? For we ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen.